Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Apparently, we can make our own vaccines if we try. Our province is doing a good enough job of vaccine rollout. And the Ontario license plate issue, to me, exposes a much bigger problem with government. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I understand my mom talked about a new air fryer during her intro yesterday. Boy, it's going to be hard for me to beat an easy bake oven. Here we go. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Nice muffins. It's getting ugly now. It's become a competition between the family. I'm not sure. That's what happens, you know, when you're almost a year into uh, the stay-at-home pandemic. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station, keeping us between the rails uh, for uh, week number 50 of the Scott Thompson Home Show. Jordan Armini is doing the content production. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. But I want to get right to our our first guest here. And uh, this is an important uh, aspect of this story, which we've been trying to uh, shed a little bit more light on. Uh, Canada lags the developed world in COVID-19 vaccinations because it provided insufficient upfront funding uh, to domestic companies that had potential inoculations in their pipeline, vaccine developers told a, f- a federal parliamentary committee uh, this week. Had the federal government taken the approach that the United States and the United Kingdom had, which provided hundreds of millions of dollars to companies with potential candidates early in the pandemic, the country would be on the cusp of making homegrown COVID-19 vaccines, says John Lewis, an Edmonton-based biotechnology, uh, biotechnology executive. Uh, again, part of a committee that is uh, ongoing into where we are. Let's bring in John Lewis, CEO of Entos Pharmaceuticals, and is with us now. John, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Well, hi, Scott. Pleasure to be here. Uh, tell us about this committee, first of all, that you're uh, testifying at. And, and what's that going? What's the objective here? Shed a little light on that for Canadians. Sure, yeah. No, I was asked to uh, to present my view on the second wave of the pandemic to this uh, standing committee on health uh, put together by the House of Commons. And it's basically a subcommittee looking at uh, how the pandemic is uh, is developing, uh, how Canada can adapt to the sort of the changing information and uh, and how can we do better. Uh, we remember way back when, when um, before Christmas, the prime minister said, uh, as everybody knows, we just don't make these anymore. And he kind of dropped that bomb uh, in the middle of a conversation. And I think it took a lot of Canadians uh, by surprise. Uh, he told us that we don't have the capacity, the production capacity here in Canada. Uh, what is, the, give us a, a snapshot of what is the, the health of the pharmaceutical industry in Canada? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty complex question. And I think, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we probably made some assumptions about how quickly we needed to ramp up manufacturing and, and how long the pandemic would last. And I think a lot of those assumptions uh, were being proven wrong. So, yeah, so definitely, I mean, Canada had a rich and, uh, and productive vaccine manufacturing environment uh, in the past decades. And, you know, because of changes in, in priorities uh, of the country and changes in the way Pharmaceutical companies were uh, uh, sort of the environment from which they can thrive. I think a lot of that industry has left Canada over the past couple decades. We've that certainly, said, though, obviously, yeah. Go ahead. 
No, no, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that said, uh, Canada has, a you know, an amazing environment, uh, you know, fantastic universities where innovative science is happening and, uh, and really uh, a growing and, and world-leading biotherapeutics uh, uh, and innovation uh, uh, industry that, that can really, uh, you know, was ready to rise to the occasion uh, of the coronavirus pandemic and develop new tools to, to get us out of it. And I think, I think that's what really was missed in that initial survey of, of Canadian capacity is that we were absolutely ready and available and, uh, and, you know, and willing to bring all of our resources to bear to, to, to get to the end of this pandemic. And, and as uh, we've and heard, have been working for that. As we've heard, John, and as you, you've reiterated here, uh, we used to do this, used to have the capacity. We've heard many in politics blame past prime ministers for that. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not government that makes vaccine, it's private companies. So isn't the issue really here? Is the Canadian government doing enough to support this industry, both locally, as, as you have said, uh, but also internationally? Yeah, are we doing enough really to make it conducive of, for? The, are we making? Are we making it conducive enough for these businesses we to can stay? Still correct our course and and get to where we need to go. I think, and I brought this up to the, the the health committee. If we look at the success that happened in other countries, the U.S. is a great example because they invested heavily and in, upfront in eight different vaccine platforms, not knowing which ones would be successful at the end, but making sure they had sufficient financing to basically take that shot on goal. And, uh, and now we've seen, you know, out of that effort, two vaccines th- all the way through the end of phase three clinical trials, one licensed, the, the second one ready to be licensed. And so that speaks to the success of being able to, to invest early and upfront and really taking the financial risk away from the companies developing vaccines uh, and so that they can proceed forward as fast as possible and not worry about the financial aspects of it, really concentrating on the science and the safety and the efficacy of those vaccines. It seems in the last few years we've spent more time fighting with pharma over high-priced drugs, that sort of thing. Has Canada geared its industry more to the generic side of all of this instead of the R&D that you're speaking of? Yeah, so I mean, I, 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 I hate to look back on things, but I think, yeah, absolutely. Canada's created an environment that has made it, I would say, a little more difficult for innovative companies both to develop drugs and, and bring them, you know, to the market and also for international pharmaceutical companies to, to basically thrive in this market. And obviously drug costs and, and the Canadian healthcare system, uh, you know, are, are a big part of that and, and, and need to be dealt with in a way uh, that's equitable for everybody. But I think, you know, given the infrastructure and the expertise that we have in Canada, we absolutely have to build this industry. This is, this is the, the future uh, for all of humanity, including the health and, and uh, welfare of Canadians. And we have all the ingredients in Canada to be able to build a world-beating industry. Um, it seems way back when, March, April, when all of these decisions were being made, uh, uh, the government of Canada was involved in a deal with CanSino. So that was a production deal, uh, but obviously it fell through uh, courtesy of the Chinese government. Are you surprised, since we were going at production deals at that point, that this didn't involve some sort of homegrown solution? Even when uh, the Prime Minister did announce a production deal, it was with Novavax, which is actually a U.S. company. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, I think, and I've said this before, I think when, when you don't know what effort is going to be successful, 
And it's critical that one of the efforts be successful domestically in order to get out of the pandemic, as we've seen. You really need to invest upfront and heavily in all of them. And CanSign was a great example. You know, it, it came up. It was, a, it, it was a very promising at that time opportunity uh, that proved very shortly after to, to, to not be viable at all. Uh, Novavax is another great example, if you want to get me talking. Novavax is a 33-year-old company. January 2020 was almost bankrupt, had never had a, a successful commercial vaccine. And, and they received that upfront, decisive you know, funding for their program, you know, some $1.6 billion from the U.S. federal government that allowed them to take, you know, to take their platform, which is you know, admittedly very good, and bring it all the way to the end of phase three clinical trials. We now have a Novavax vaccine that has over 90% efficacy uh, and, and I can't believe it. We're going to actually make that vaccine in Canada. So, um, so I think this very well could have been a Canadian company with the same story. And we'd be building, you know, all the economic benefit. If you look at Novavax now and the investment that was made, they'd be one of the largest companies in Canada now. And, uh, and if that investment had been made in a Canadian company, we'd be very much, you know, very likely to be in that position with one of our companies. And, you know, you bring up a valid point, which I don't think a lot of people realize when they are running down the generic road all the time. And again, nothing wrong with that, but you, you've got to, to keep, uh, you can't have blinders on, um, is, you know, at the end of the day, uh, these companies provide jobs here. These companies grow an industry here. And, uh, you know, it could have easily have been a Canadian company as opposed to an American company that was involved in this. Absolutely. Yeah, we have, I mean, we have Nobel Prize winners in vaccine development and Michael Howden at the University of Alberta. We have, you know, amazing biotechnology companies and, and biopharmaceutical companies across uh, Canada, all with, you know, very extremely viable and differentiated vaccine candidates that if they'd been fully funded at the beginning, I think we'd have, you know, four or five made in Canada vaccines getting ready to go over that finish line now. Um, and and really, these are the basis of an industry that could really you know, build a new economy for Canada. Uh, these are you know, well-paid jobs, uh, you know, technical jobs, and uh, and really, it, it is kind of tragic at this point that we're looking at sending all of our money to other countries who invested in their vaccine industry, uh, and then obviously having to wait in line for those doses to be sent. So what does Canada need to do in order to make this industry more viable in Canada in order to uh, to become self-sufficient in this area? And, and it, do we need to be self-sufficient in this, John? Obviously, this has shown uh, the pandemic has shown where the weak links are. Uh, d- does each country have to have this capacity? Yeah, I think this is you bring up a great point. This is absolutely a matter of national security. Uh, you know, the, the federal government has already put $400 billion toward mitigating the effects of the pandemic, and, and we're not anywhere near the end of it yet. And as we look at, you know, how this pandemic has developed, we had the initial coronavirus, and now we have the emergence of these variants. Because so many millions of people worldwide have been infected, this virus has had ample chance to adapt and evolve. And we're seeing those variants come out now. This is not, this is only the beginning uh, we're going to continue to see variants. These variants will start to evade these initial first wave of vaccines. So absolutely, I think certainly it is not too late by any stretch of the imagination to make a decisive investment both in the development of vaccines in Canada and the manufacturing capacity we need for multiple vaccine platforms. And so so that we can be ready uh, to vaccinate our own population against these emerging variants as they come. Because I think you know we're looking at a, a pretty long-term 
battle here with uh, with the coronavirus not going away after one year, likely coming back year after year. You know, uh, the point I wanted to make, too, was a lot of people don't realize the cost of development of these vaccines. You were talking about Novavax and how, you know, difficult a time they were having until this olive branch was thrown to them. Uh, lots of times there's money spent on this and they go nowhere. Is the Are Canadians aware of this process? Yeah, I think it's a tough process to know very well. But, you know, science, you know, I've been an academic scientist for a couple decades now. Science is a, a lot of failure peppered by the odd success. And I think, you know, absolutely when it comes to vaccine development, it's no different. We have to expect that, you know, maybe 20% of our efforts will be successful. But it is, it's sort of a we can't lose situation. You know, losing really against this uh, coronavirus isn't an option. We're losing lives, we're losing livelihoods. And, uh, and so an upfront investment, you know, a fraction of what we've already spent on mitigating the effects of the pandemic could have put us in a position where we could now look at the end of it. So what does Canada need to do, John, in order to get this industry back up on its feet? What are, and there's certainly, we've heard lots of stories like yours from various CEOs and such. What, what is it that you need in order uh, to create a scenario that, where we don't find ourselves in this predicament again? Yeah, so I think there's really two, two sort of, I could answer that in two ways. Number one, I think we're still in the middle of this pandemic. We still have, we have a number of very, very promising vaccine candidates that have sort of moved their way into the very early stages of development with, with some government funding and obviously some of their own funding. And, and so I think we, we need to, you know, be decisive now and invest, you know, substantially in multiple vaccine efforts to bring them through so that we can bring them to bear on this pandemic. And I think we absolutely still have time to do that. The other side of it is the vaccine manufacturing side of things. So we've got some great facilities that have limited capacity, but their expertise in manufacturing, sort of the next generation vaccine technologies are there. And so if we can make decisive investments in commercial vaccine and biotherapeutics manufacturing across the country now, We'll be in a great position not only to make the vaccines that we need for Canadians and potentially send those vaccines worldwide, but also be ready for both the next pandemic and this growing, you know, high tech, uh, important health industry that's really going to transform the way we deliver medicine. And so we've seen, you know, obviously with the pandemic, we've developed vaccines in record time. Previously, it was over 10 years. Now we've done it in less than a year. There's no reason we can't do this for many other diseases. And Canada should be at the forefront of this. Uh, last question, John. Uh, you said something next pandemic, which uh, obviously frightens a lot of people. But this is a case of preparing this industry for the future, for what comes next. There may be more of this. Accurate? Oh, I think it's it's absolutely a foregone conclusion. There will be other viruses that will become pandemic. It's just a matter of when. Uh, and we absolutely should be ready. All right, John Lewis has been with us, CEO of Entos Pharmaceuticals, participating in a parliamentary committee on where we are in uh, COVID-19 and, in this specific case, vaccine development and production right here in Canada. John, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck with all of this. Thanks, Scott. Good to talk to you. Now it's time for my opinion. Here is today's daily commentary. I want to read you an excerpt from an official Ontario NDP media release that came to my inbox yesterday during Premier Doug Ford's COVID-19 news conference. The media release reads, 
On Wednesday, Ford claimed Quebec had not yet issued a single second dose. Quebec has deliberately chosen to roll out the first dose to a wider population, which data shows is being successful and means Quebec has started vaccinating many more people than Ontario. Their data was a CBC article. The clinical research says to hold the second dose for 21 days. That is the directive from Health Canada and the drug manufacturer. That was the criteria used in their scientific research and clinical testing. The other data has not been clinically proven and requires much more research to reach that conclusion. Dr. Bonnie Henry in British Columbia used the same strategy as Quebec, but then stopped short and held back the second dose when it was obvious we would not be receiving the vaccine the Prime Minister had promised. Is the NDP promoting overruling the standards and prescriptions set during clinical testing by the manufacturer and Health Canada? This even after Canadians have already experienced delays in the shipment of the life-saving vaccine? It certainly sounds like it to me. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, Ontario's online portal where people from the general population can book their COVID-19 vaccine appointment going to be launched March 15th. A lot of people are cranky about that as Quebec is starting their registration now and hope to start vaccinating on March 1st. That is two full weeks before Ontario does. Ontario allowing people 80 and over uh, to start registering at that time for Manitoba right now, they're starting with 85-year-olds. So uh, is someone doing it better than the other? What are the reasons for Ontario's delay on that, if in fact that is the case? Let's bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thanks. Thanks very much, Scott. Uh, your thoughts on on how this is rolling out? Uh, Ontario obviously getting criticized for its slow to, uh, start. Um, obviously, Quebec has uh, started registration already. They hope to vaccinate, start vaccinating uh, by March first. Uh, for Ontario, they're looking at uh, March fifteenth. Uh, how much of this has to do with holding back the second dose? Uh, Canada, or sorry, Ontario hasn't done that. They've, uh, I think it's the last numbers I saw, up to seventy percent of the people had received their second dose uh, in Quebec. Uh, zero at this point. Uh, obviously, uh, the more vaccine you get into uh, other people for the first uh, dose, you're going to make uh, uh, an impact at the beginning. Your thoughts on Thomas and how this is rolling out? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Scott. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, first up, we, we have to sort of remember that the federal government has sort of set the sort of guidelines, broad guidelines on who should get what vaccine when. And so so that that's sort of identified stage, three stages of rollout, and that's based on risk. And so... Uh, you know, the first stage that we're in now uh, is really for the you know people who are the highest risk, who are in the aged care and uh, over 70 and frontline workers and people uh, in in indigenous communities. And so, so pretty much each province is is targeting those groups of people, but they seem to be targeting them in you know in, in different ways or, or in different different orders of of rollout. And so, so I think uh, you know. There's pluses and minuses to which way you go on, go on it, but uh, you know pretty much all of the provinces have sort of I think have targeted you know the uh, frontline healthcare workers first, 
and as well as the uh, people in aged care facilities uh, are now are, are moving moving on to uh, you know people based on age. And so, uh, you know, like like you said, the uh, you know a big big question is you know do you know should we focus on just one, one you know rolling out just the first uh, first dose uh, and and trying to get broader coverage with with one dose uh, or should we uh, be including people in that sort of rollout for, for second doses, and you know, and I think uh, you know, from a from a perspective of you know, if you want to, the more people you want, like there's there's benefits in having people uh, as many people as possible having the first dose, uh, with because of there there is a, a level of you know a reasonable level of immunity involved with that, uh, but then you know, ultimately you do want to have people have the second dose, but the question is. Whether or not uh, delaying the second dose, uh, what what does that do for the the total level of immunity someone might have? And 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 at this stage they don't really know, you know, if if you sort of there's they basically say there's a window, time window with within which they should be giving the second dose. And so the question is, if if your focus is on first doses and you then miss the, that time window for the second dose, what what happens then? You know, is it is it, is it really worth even giving the second dose or not? And so, so uh, part of, part of it is that you know it, it's uh, you know they're trying to sort of in essence do sort of research on the fly while while trying to deliver deliver uh, as many vaccines as possible. Is that wise considering both Health Canada and the drug manufacturers say don't do that, hold back the second dose for twenty one to twenty eight days? Well, yeah, like like I think uh, you know my my sense is that you know. The, the best the best approach is to try and ensure that everyone gets their second dose within the within the uh, appropriate time window and um, uh, but but obviously that that's all predicated on sufficient supply of, of vaccines as well as you know a, an appropriate sort of distribution and, and uh, uh, structure for for delivery of vaccines to people and so 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 and and I think what we're seeing is that that you know we, we've we've had troubles with uh, vaccine supply, and then obviously you know putting in place the the, the uh, infrastructure to actually deliver the, the quantity of vaccines is uh, you know is, is proving to be difficult as well. And so, and and then obviously you know if you know what what we're seeing is that with people with with people having to then get onto some sort of booking system, you know those booking systems get overwhelmed, and then uh, you know, it, 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 ultimately, if you could, you know, everyone, if anyone who wants a vaccine can turn up and just get one, that, that's what we really, really want to have happen, you know. But uh, because of the uh, infrastructure and, and supply uh, sort of problems, they, they have to sort of really ration out what's getting out there. And, and, and that's, you know, starting to cause some problems. And obviously, this is a result of shortages. If uh, we had an ample supply, we wouldn't be having these discussions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's you know, they're, well, they're, they're, there's two things. It's one one aspect is the supply and and having sufficient doses, but then you also need to have the sufficient infrastructure in place to be able to deliver mm-hmm. those to to people. And so, so I think uh, you know. You know, in in some ways, if we had the ample supply, I'm sure we'd make make ways to make sure that we would get the uh, doses to everyone. Um, are you surprised that um, now many are pointing to Quebec and Alberta as uh, doing well 
on this uh, in this situation, considering it was only a few weeks ago we were looking at Quebec and Alberta as the worst examples uh, and had some of the greatest challenges and, and difficulties through all of this, which is, I'm sure, one of the reasons Quebec decided to, to just unload all of the doses uh, as a first shot, as sort of as a hail mary, they were they were they were in quite dire uh, straits at one point. Are you surprised that these two provinces now seem to be held out held up as the poster children on how to do this? Yeah, well, like I, I think one of the you know other aspects is just the you know the public health system in each of the provinces, and so public health is from under the you know the Canadian Constitution is is a role of the province, and each province decides on how best to do public health. And so in, say, in, in Ontario, we have a public health unit structure where there's 34 public health units across the province, whereas, say, on, whereas uh, Alberta has one uh, health system called, you know, Alberta Health Services. And so, that they, so, so, you know, you have that difference in, you know, there's pluses and minuses for both options. Uh, you know, Alberta is able to have one set of rules and, you know, they can just deliver things within one system. Whereas, you know, here, the, uh, you know, the province is saying, well, you know, the provincial government, you know, is in charge of these aspects of the rollout and then the public health units are, are responsible for other aspects of the rollout and then each public health unit can decide how best they want to do that. And, you know, and I think there's obviously pluses for that in regard to, Allowing you know sort of context and local context specific uh, solutions and, and approaches, but but that but having sort of a mix can also uh, provide further complications. So so you know part of it is also gets back to that uh, you know that sort of fundamental structure that how how public health is operated in each of the provinces. Uh, you talk about uh, the local uh, health agencies, and, and many have talked about that. And, and obviously, um, Ontario, a much more diverse province, much more um, uh, complicated in the sense that it has uh, extreme urbanization right out to uh, a, a rural uh, environment. Is that a go- is that an excuse for Ontario being later on this than others? It's just a more complex system, uh, a more complex uh, society. Society, more complex uh, citizenry to get all this done. Uh, yeah, uh, or is that no excuse at all? Uh, no, no. I, I, like I think that you know that plays plays into it. Uh, but but like from a public health unit perspective, the, the public health units you know have have a lot of experience in delivering you know immunisation programs. I think you know it, it you know the issue for this is that uh, you know this is uh, trying to deliver you know if in essence, capacity ramp up, you know, substantial ramp up, while and particularly for public health units, while they're also doing their their you know existing uh, prevention measures and you know the case case and case contact uh, tracing as well. So, so in a lot of ways, it's it's uh, uh, it's around resourcing for for the public health units, and that, that resourcing comes from the you know the provincial government. So, so I think that there's there's uh, like I think that you know. With sufficient, uh, you know, sort of resourcing, particularly around, you know, personnel and uh, and as well as getting the, uh, you know, sufficient vaccine supplies, I think that uh, you know we will will be in a you know a much better position. But but I think overall, you know, sort of Canada's approach to the vaccine rollout is 
been different to other countries. Like in a lot of ways, it sort of said, well, let's have a, you know, it was more of a longer term uh, game versus a short term. It's, you know, other countries said, mm. let's get as many vaccines as possible and let, let's get them as soon as possible and let's get them out there as, as quickly as possible. Whereas Canada has sort of said, well, we'll have a three-stage process that will, you know, that, that'll go over, you know, six or seven or eight months. Uh, we'll, you know, and, and, and so, so it's, it's, a, it's a different strategy. But, but uh, you know, and I think what we're seeing is that, you know, right now, you know, people are saying, well, if other countries have been able to roll this out quickly, you know, why, why can't we? And, and uh, part of it gets down to, I think, a philosophy or you know, an overall uh, strategy on, on, you know, what was really determined, you know, probably six months or nine months ago. So, Have we done enough to make it palatable for Canadian production for these companies to set up shop? Well, yeah, see, and I think that's, that's really one of the, uh, you know, the things that we've really seen through this process is that uh you know we're very reliant on you know two two manufacturers uh who are you know both uh international you know based internationally uh and and uh you know we don't have any ability uh within within the country to supply our own needs and so so i think you know that something like that is is really you know very much a policy uh sort of position and and i think like you were saying your previous comments with a previous caller was, you know, how how does the government uh, put in place incentives and uh, uh, systems and processes that encourage, uh, you know, local manufacture? May, many say there's a reason that it is the, that it turned out the way that it did. As far as the facilities leaving, we don't necessarily have to have this. We just need better deals with those. Is it? Uh, efficient is it economical does it is does it make sense to have production here or yeah. is it just not viable well yeah my my sense is that you know under you know under sort of normal operating conditions you know the uh, you know where 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 there isn't a pandemic and where there isn't some sort of wide scale outbreak then then yeah sure you know the the business uh you know infrastructure that that is really Sort of putting in place what what is, you know, sort of cutting things to the bone and making sure that you know is as efficient as possible. In that way, it it sort of pushes it, you know, out of out of the country. But but what what happens then is that once you're in a situation like we are now, then then it uh, put, means that we're we're uh, very reliant on you know uh, people from you know, companies from overseas uh, to to help, you know, supply what we need. And so so part of it is that uh, aspect of, of uh, are, are we prepared to, you know, pro, you know, sort of support and provide sort of uh, systems and processes that, that provide sort of, may, you know, some people might say they're a little bit redundant, but, 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 but then, but uh, if, you know, if, if there is a situation like we're in now, then we're we're ready and we're able to to you know you know sort of uh, meet that demand. So so there's uh, you know pluses and minuses both ways. I think. Have we learned from this? Do you think those changes will be made moving forward? We've obviously heard this isn't the end of this sort of thing. That uh, this could be the future. Um, have we learned from this? Will we turn this around? Yeah. Well, like I'd I'd like to think so, and and I think you know. What we've what we've seen with the, the particularly with you know vaccine uh, 
vaccine sort of development is that 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 the sort of the newer style vaccines really lend themselves to uh, you know be able to be uh, developed in in a, like in a lot of in a lot of ways in uh, uh, and sort of more straightforward uh, process and, and a process that that allows that would that will allow uh, different uh, say newer newer competitors to get into the market and so so I think you know hopefully we can uh, you know this this sort of provides the, the groundwork and the incentive to to support uh, uh, you know on you know on uh, development uh, within Canada for and and I think that's you know they're talking about that but but you know the the timeline is 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 quite quite long and so you know for this uh, current process we we we're relying on we're relying on the uh, international uh, companies at this stage. Thomas Denkate has been with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with Ryerson University, talking about vaccines and the struggle to get them here and distrib- uh, distribute them. Thomas, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Uh, thanks very much, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, let's move on to uh, license plates. And, you know, I have a theory about the whole license. Remember the whole thing when Ford decided he wanted a, a new license plate and, uh, you know, rebranding the province. The old ones had been there for a long time, blah, 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 new government. And then, of course, it turned into a big fiasco and opposition jumped all over it because how dare you spend time doing that? and putting the people in the license department to work when there's other more pressing things to do, I guess. Uh, but then one would think that perhaps getting a new license plate really isn't like splitting the atom, is it? Well, apparently for Ontario, it is. And uh, so anyway, we all know the story about what happened. Uh, they issued the new license plate, the new blue one. And I remember driving up to one and thinking, I don't think I can see that. And then, of course, within 24 hours, uh, the story broke and and everybody was wondering how the heck did a plate get from design to production to distribution? And it's not even meeting the standards that a plate has to make, uh, uh, to make i.e. glow in the dark when a light hits it. So, uh, obviously, uh, everybody was screaming and yelling, um, as if it's the leader's job to make sure that the license plate, wait a sec, before we do anything more uh, on the pandemic, I got the new license plate to put across the premier's desk. Can you just take a uh, look at this? Maybe go in the closet with a flashlight, make sure you can, like, that's not what the job of the premier is. That's what the job of the licensing department and the people who work there, that's what they do. So, obviously, uh, it was a big embarrassment for uh, the government. The pandemic then came along, and they said, you know what the hell, that we're just going to scrap the new plate and just keep going with the old one. And, uh, you know, Ford wore the egg on his face for that. But, you know, <laughs> is it me? Or has anyone else ever had a issue with license plates in this province? And I'm not talking about this year or last year. How about five years ago? How about 10 years ago? How about 15 years ago? Because the plates have been crap for at least 20 years. So I don't think it has anything to do with the liberals. I don't think it has anything to do with the conservatives. I don't think it has anything to do with Premier Wynn or Premier McGinty or Premier Ford. To me, this is exactly what is wrong with government. And that has been exposed during COVID-19. 
It's inability to be nimble. It's inability to be efficient. It's inability not to drop the damn ball. Very simple. Someone wants a new plate design. You throw it to the department. They do it. They work through all the bugs. They get it uh, worked out with the manufacturer. And boom, there you go. But somehow between the premier's desk and the desk of 3M, the company that designed the plate or produced the plate, rather, something went horribly wrong. And that has nothing to do with the leaders of any political party. And you're blaming 3M? Are you kidding me? Do you, not, do you honestly think that someone at 3M didn't go, you know, I don't think this is going to work for you guys. Are you sure this is what you want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just stamp it out. And they want the contract, so they're going to cover the cost for and eat anything. But again, it's not about the plate. It's about the government and system that's in place that allows this mistake or these types of mistakes to happen. Uh, fascinating article. Nick uh, Westall is on this, journalist for Global News, and uh, he's got a great piece, Replacement Plan for Ontario's New License Plates, uh, still in the works, uh, year after concerns raised. Nick, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. Same to you. So can you give us an update? Where are we with this story? Well, basically, not much farther than we were a year ago. Um, so, I mean, as you sort of alluded to, this came up in February you know, it was an, off, uh, an officer took a picture off duty, uh, posted it on Twitter. It went viral. It went all over the province. When light hits these blue plates at a certain angle, makes the letters and characters, you know, hard to see. So there was th- this story sort of blew up. In fact, uh, the Ontario government received uh, media requests from uh, the Daily Mail and NPR. So it had international attention. So you know, a couple months after it first was revealed that there was these problems, uh, I revert back to the old plates, uh, and uh, we will exchange anyone who has blue plates. We will get you uh, replacement ones. So around that time, we put in a free to try to get more information about the process and what was going on. That took several months to get back, but. When we checked in with the government a year later after those concerns were initially raised, um, we were told that uh, officials are still working on a plan to swap out the plates for people who have the blue ones to get them the older white ones. Nick, do we know anything more on how this could have happened? Um, you know, again, I know the premier's taking heat for this, but at the end of the day, it's not the it's not the premier premier's job to be the last one that checks off the new license plate. Uh, same with 3M at the other end. It's somewhere in the middle. Do we have any idea how it got to this point? Uh, production and distribution before anybody even raised a red flag about this. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there's still questions that are lingering about this. And, um, you know, at the time, the government said, well, it's gone through uh, multiple stakeholder consultations as part of this redesign. And as part of the documents we obtained, um, it, it did go through OPP. There were uh, at least uh, two or three instances where they put it through testing. And uh, there's a technology that's uh, in cruisers that can scan license plates. And when the OPP did those tests based on the information we saw, that yes, those scanners can um, pick up the characters. That was an issue. But also in the same document, it says there's only about 100 police cruisers across 35 different police services in Ontario that have the technology to read the plates. So 
most of the time it's going to fall to people who use their naked eye to try to read these characters. So, yes, uh, there is some testing, and what the OPP did using that technology did verify that they were readable, but there are still lingering questions about, you know, pure... Uh, visibility to the naked eye and the extent of that. And that wasn't clear based on the documents we got back. And it just seems so bizarre, Nick, that, you know, anybody who looks at this even once couldn't see that there's an issue here. Yet, for some reason, that was not flagged until it was ending up on somebody else's car. Uh, I don't know if you heard my preamble going into this, Nick, but, you know, uh, I got a plate on my car from the last government that the letters have fallen off. And I put that on my car when I got it because the plate before that on my old car its numbers had fallen off. So there's two generations of plates that I've had where the numbers had fallen off. It's certainly a different issue than, than the new plate. But at the end of the day, um, clearly we have an issue with the people in the license plate department because this has been an ongoing issue for at least 20 years. So, uh, you know, whether it's McGinty, whether it's Wynn, whether it's Ford, whether it's liberal or conservative, is there being any sort of thought into... What kind of system is in place here that allows this to happen? Yeah, it's quite interesting. You mentioned that older plate issue. Like even the day after I put out that article, um, I, I saw some of the plates where you know the finish off the top has totally come off. So you, you can't even mm-hmm. pick out the letters on the old one. So yeah, it's been an issue for years. Um, and you know the government's promised that as part of this, after these whole issue, this whole issue rather came to light that um, it's going to go toward refining the design, making it more durable, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, again, we had many questions we posed uh, to the government on this file. Even basic ones is how many blue plates are left on the road? And we couldn't get a straight answer to even the most basic questions a year after, again, these concerns were first raised. I wonder if there's any plans to refine the department that approved this. Yeah, I mean, and here's the thing. It goes across multiple departments, believe it or not. Um, so there's the Ministry of Government and Consumer Services. They're the ministry that operates Service Ontario, and they disperse plates. And then, obviously, they have to work with the Ministry of Transportation, the Ministry of the Solicitor General, because that's where the OPP fall under, and that's where some of the testing happens. So this has gone over multiple ministries uh, over several months. And, um, again, you know, I know there's... Uh, there's been talk that there's a, uh, they're working on a plan to replace these plates, and rightfully so. There's been some um, concerns raised about COVID and how that's impacted things. Right. Fine, but a year later, and there's still no time frame of when, even a rough time frame of when these plates will be replaced, um, is a bit surprising. And uh, in speaking with the Ontario Safety League as part of this uh, story, they said, well, they'd like to see these plates totally fixed by the end of the Ford government's mandate, which is in 2022. And again, there's no indication if even that will happen. No, I, obviously this isn't a priority when even it's not a priority to get our licenses renewed right now, our license yep. plates renewed because of the COVID-19 uh, situation. Uh, they're not ticketing people for that. So you can see how this obviously is not a priority. But again, I, I just hope the focus gets 
put on how this actually happened. Like somebody in the system let this ball hit the ground. Somebody dropped the ball. And like this is a pretty, pretty damning situation. Uh, again, you know, license plates, not the end of the world. But again, to let something that go through that was so substandard, man, you know, I have a hard time believing this was a leader or even the company that did this. This has got to be, this is the department just not crossing the T's and dotting the I's. Any any indication of that, Nick? Yeah, and again, like I said, we, we posed several questions after getting these documents in terms of the process and, and you know, even the current state. And, we you know, we got a pretty generic statement back uh, after that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much further along we are down on this yeah. plan to getting things fixed. Um it's 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 sort of surprising like even a rough time frame i think that's the biggest thing and also one other thing i should point out um for your listeners is these documents we obtained so after this first came up when this off-duty kingston police officer tweeted it and that went viral days later uh it appears uh the premier and others were on the phone with 3m canada and as a result of that conversation the next day there were several drawings that were sent back looking at different options for the plates and included in that package was a hand-drawn version of what the license plate would be. We don't know who drew it. Nobody um, provided any clarity about that. But it just speaks to sort of the reactive nature in trying to correct this problem. Well, maybe uh, when 3M sends the new plates, they can uh, uh, also supply some PPE, too, to help that get help us get through there. What a bizarre story, Nick. Uh, good work, and uh, keep following. I, I still think there's a lot to be uncovered here. Nick Westall with us, journalist for Global News. The article, Replacement Plan for Ontario's New License Plate, still in the works year after concerns have been raised. Nick, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.